Acts chapter 5, as we dive in today to our class deeper. <clears throat> Acts chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 17, and we'll read down a good portion of the chapter. So Acts chapter number 5, verse 17. Did everybody get a, a handout today? I do have one for you. You got one? Great. If you need one, just put up your hand. Nobody? All right. Acts 5, 17. Then the high priest rose up. And all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord, by night, opened the prison doors, and brought them forth, and said, Go, stand, and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning, and taught. But the high priest and they that were with him, but the high priest came and they that were with him and called the council together and all the senate of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told saying, the prison truly we found we shut with all safety and the keeper standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now, when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one of the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. And he said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain. And all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him, he also perished. And all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Lord, please help us as we study this passage today. We ask for your help and guidance. I pray that your word would speak clearly to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of things as we look at this carefully this morning. A few things I want to show, just point out as far as the, the narrative goes, and then we'll talk about the application. But you've noticed here in verse number 17, the key player that brings this opposition is who? Not a trick question. I'm going to get you engaged right from the start. I can. It's going to take a while. I just sense our, our brains are going to take a few minutes to really start clicking this morning. I know mine is. I'm on my second cup of coffee. Maybe some of you are on your first, so we're warming it up today. You got it. It's led by the high priest. Now, his motivation, what we are going to see here, his motivation and their motivation is not really spiritual. Their motivation is not about truth or doctrine or teaching. In fact, in fact, one interesting thing we learn about the belief system of these, this, the leader of the opposition being the high priest and then the others, one interesting thing we learn about their belief system is what? Look, at it's right there. You'll see it. If you read the first verses, verse 17, where we begin, what do we learn about the beliefs of, the, of this opposition that's rising up? They don't believe in the resurrection. Well, that's very true. How did you know that? Because he was a sad, you see. And as we teach the kids, that's very sad, you see. Because they don't believe in the resurrection. This was, these were the theological liberals of the day. They knew the law, but to them, Judaism and the law was a means of corporate life. It was a means of politics. It was a means of culture and identity. But they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. They denied all these things. The other sect that would have been much more orthodox, much more faithful to the scriptures, was not the Sadducees, but the, but the Pharisees. So these Sadducees here are interesting. So their motivation is not primarily spiritual or, or doctrinal, as we talked about, just I mentioned a minute ago. But their motivation would be what? What would their motivation be? to stop this movement. What, what is driving that? Why do they care? What is their motivation? It's personal. It's political, right? Because their power base, their identity, their authority, their whole cultural identity is tied up into them being the ruling class. Now, there's another personal motivation, and they gave it away. They're afraid of something. They're very, very afraid of something. Bill thinks he knows what it is, and I'm sure he does. It's down in, um, it's down in verse number 27 through 28. The, this opposition is very, very much afraid of something, not just losing their political power base, but they're afraid of what, Bill? Retribution. For what? For the crucifixion of Jesus. They are afraid. Now, why would they be afraid right now? I mean, they just had a lot. A few weeks ago, they crucified Jesus. Now, the momentum has shifted significantly. And now, we're just a few weeks into this whole thing. I mean, things are fresh. Historically, this has all just happened. And so now, they've seen 5,000, 3,000, more thousands of people who some of them would have been in the crucify him 
crowd a few weeks ago, and now they are followers of this life. I love that statement in here too. This isn't, I'm, I'm kind of just teaching two lessons today, so I, I just found a lot of really neat things in here. Notice what when the angel sets them free, in verse 8, 19, the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth. He opens prison doors, sets the captives free. I just, all these Sunday school things come into my mind right now. And um, he opens and brings them forth. And now what does the angel say? He says, go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words. And how does he identify Christianity? He calls it what? This life. This life. And that's our series that we've been in alive. They have new life in Christ. This isn't just this isn't just a new belief system. Everything about their life is now new. And as they preach it, they're, they're preaching Jesus and life and the new life that's in him. But because so many people are, are now getting on board and being converted, because all of this momentum is happening, the high priests... The, Fer- the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're all getting really worried. And they say in verse number 28, Did, we told you not to teach in this name. You didn't listen to us. All of Jerusalem is filled with this teaching. And what is your, what is your plan? This is literally what they say. To, they literally said this. If you can give me modern English. They said this. What are you trying to do? What, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to get, get us to be killed for this? Are you trying to get payback? Are you trying to get uh, vengeance on us? Are you trying to bring this man's blood upon us? Now, this is the way the disciples, it, it, those of you that were with us for our study through Luke, what you're about to see is the way that the disciples respond to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or Sadducees and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the way the disciples respond is the same way Jesus would respond in the same kinds of, the same kinds of statements. Look at Look at uh, verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Well, that's that's a bold statement right there. Now, he says, so they say, are you trying to bring his blood upon us? Are you trying to, is that what you're trying to do? First thing Peter says is, okay, we ought to obey God rather than men. And by the way, verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. In other words, I'm not bringing anybody's blood upon you. You're the ones who killed him. God raised him up. God sent him, and you're the ones who killed him. So they go, but Peter just goes right after it. He just goes right to it. And he says, he says to him, you did this. In verse 31, him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Do you notice here, they're bringing in the national component. They're pointing out the fact that you men are supposed to represent Israel. You're the ones that are supposed to represent Israel, but Jesus came to give repentance to Israel and to bring forgiveness of sins. In verse 32, we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. It's the same as when Jesus would say to the Sadducees and Pharisees, um, when he'd say, oh, you think you know the Father? Do you remember when we talked about that a few weeks ago? And he would say, the Father, if you knew the Father, the Father testifies about me. Peter says the same thing. We're not just the only witnesses of, we're not the only witnesses of Jesus. The Holy Ghost is. And if you would obey the Holy Spirit, if you would obey God, you would know Jesus. If you would obey God, 
you would know Jesus. It's not enough to be religious. It's not enough to have some form of spirituality. The true God points to his son, God the Son, Jesus Christ. So, when they heard that in verse 33, they're cut to the heart. They're cut to the heart. That's what the power of the Holy Spirit does. It cuts to the heart. Not just the Holy Spirit, but the Word of God does that. Can anybody think of a scripture that describes that the Word of God cuts to the heart? Anybody know that scripture? There's a scripture that describes the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. It's Hebrews chapter 4. Yeah, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word, for the Word of God is quick and powerful. Quick means life-giving. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of joint and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God, and if you got saved, if you're saved, it's because the Spirit of God took the Word of God and cut you to the heart, either convicting you of your sin, well, ultimately convicting you of your sin, overwhelming you with the love of Christ, and offering the free gift of eternal life. Now, these men were undoubtedly under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Did they get saved? No. Does that mean the Holy Spirit wasn't working? No. Not at all. They were so cut to, to the heart, they were so cut by the work of the Holy Spirit, that it actually had, at this moment in time, at this moment in time, the Word of God actually had the opposite effect on them and what did it do to them? It enraged them. I mean, and they were just filled with anger and rage. And they're like, we did it to Jesus. Now, let's, maybe, maybe this is the solution. Let's just do it to them. Not very rational thinking. Remember, a few minutes ago, they're worried about being killed themselves. And now they're going back to their old ways. But they're not, they're not doing anything that makes sense because they're, so, they're, so, they're, they're under conviction. They're under conviction. They can't escape it. If you stick around for the morning service in a few minutes, when we go to Acts chapter 6, we're going to find in Acts chapter 6, a few weeks later, that many priests became Christians in Acts chapter 6. Some of them very likely were the very people who are under conviction now, and then in, a, in just a few short days, they're going to respond another way. Aren't you thankful for the grace and the, the long-suffering of God? that even these people that would resist and reject in violent opposition, God was still working on them. Paul will, will become, in, in our account, a wonderful testimony of that transformation. Why do I share that? Because don't, don't be all worried when you see people or even culture being so stridently opposed to the Scripture and so stridently opposed. And don't view it, don't view it like we're in a culture war. I know people like to talk about that. Okay, don't view it that way. The truth of the matter is this. We stand for truth in the word of God. And if we keep speaking the word of God to people, we just have to have faith that the Holy Spirit is doing his work in people's hearts. And whether they come up with strong opposition or not, God's word will do it. There's a pastor, I just watched his video yesterday. There's a pastor in the state of Maine, at a Baptist church in Maine. I don't know him personally. He's a friend of a friend. Um, and... His church, Second Baptist Church, you may have seen it in the news. It's actually made national news. It's Pride Month, right? It's Pride Month, the month of June and all of that. And um, his church, 
put a, a statement on their sign. I don't think this was the most tactful statement. Nonetheless, it was a true statement. And on his sign, he wrote, Jesus created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That was their statement. I personally don't find that to be the most tactful way to go about it, but true nonetheless. Okay? And I know who I'm going to stand with. Right? I know who I'm going to stand with. I'm not, not going to be critical of a, of a brother in Christ who faces opposition when all he did was speak the truth. In love, actually. So he all kinds of publicity, national news, all of this stuff. And I watched, he put a video out yesterday. And I thought he handled it just exceptionally well. And he made this statement. He said, listen, in our community, there are public buildings, there are public buildings, churches even, and I'll paraphrase him, They'll, they fly the rainbow flag, they put public displays of support for this lifestyle. He says, all we were doing was in the same fashion, putting a public display expressing a different viewpoint. I mean, can you deny that? He said nothing hateful, he said nothing, he did nothing to tell people that, um, you know, to cause harm to anyone. He simply offered an alternative viewpoint publicly just like all of the opposition around us to Christianity is very public, right? We live in a world nobody's afraid to nobody's afraid to promote a sinful lifestyle. So why why should we be afraid to promote a righteous lifestyle? Now listen, all of us, all of us have experienced or heard people be hateful to sinful people. Not sinful people, sinful lifestyles. We're all sinful people. All of us have heard it presented in a hateful way. But the, and we know that that would be sinful as well, correct? No matter how we speak against anything. But nonetheless, we're called to be bold. So the point is, the, the, in, the, in Acts, the opposition is awfully bold, but Peter is equally bold. And he stands up and says it. That the, the, uh, the pastor gave a great explanation, if you watch the video, about how anybody that was of that lifestyle would be welcome in their church to come. They would be treated very warmly and, and received very well. And I thought he couldn't have really said it any better than, than the way that he explained it. Now, unfortunately, that's not all explained on a sign like that. And so I, I, I wouldn't personally put that sign up that way. But nonetheless, he stood for the truth. And then when asked to give a defense, he gave a very loving, straightforward explanation of standing for truth and righteousness, and he called people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I thought that was, it just encouraged me to see him do that and to see, to see him uh, not back down. There have been many other Christian celebrities, singers, um, some very popular Christian singers and musicians and some, some celebrity pastors that they have national platforms. They go on talk shows and they've been asked about these kinds of things and there's no boldness. There's just, well, you know, I, I can't really speak to this or I can't really speak to that. So we learn, and we talked about it last, last week, that we learn from the disciples. They have, I've been trying to think of how I got onto that, but now I remembered. It's because the Holy Spirit does his work. And just because, just because we don't think that the truth is being received favorably, just because we don't see truth being received favor favorably, doesn't mean we have to back down from the truth. It doesn't mean we have to stop declaring the gospel, declaring righteousness. We don't have to stop any of that. Because even if there's opposition, even if we face opposition, 
It's because the truth is going out and the Holy Spirit is convicting. So don't ever be discouraged by that. Now that was a public example, but in your personal interactions, in our, in our exchanges with people, we try to lovingly persuade and share the gospel with people. As we give the scripture, the Holy Spirit will do its work. Don't judge today's reaction. Don't judge today's reaction and assume that there will never be salvation in their heart. You just got to be patient and persevere and trust. Many of these people in Acts chapter six, four, 5, whatever, 5, many of these people, they're going to be in the opposition right up until the end of the book of Acts. But some of them are going to come to faith in Christ. And they were just as much opposed at the beginning. All right. So we see all these wonderful things in this passage. We've got a few minutes left, so I want to just talk about one really specific application here that I think will help all of us a little bit. So ultimately, this passage is about, the, the main interpretation of this passage is the defense of the gospel, the boldness to speak God's word, God watching over them, accomplishing his plan. But I think we know this, and I want to give this little key concept, and hopefully you can help me talk about it for the 10 or 15 minutes we have left together. And that is this, all of us, are going to face different levels of opposition in our life. Would you agree with that? <laughs> you might be facing it right now. You might be dealing with it now. Each and every one of us is going to face a measure of opposition. It's going to take different forms, different identities. Um, so how do we, what do we learn from this passage about how that you and I can react to the opposition that we face with faith? With faith. We all face a measure of, of opposition, and it's varying in, in its intensity. So somebody tell me this. Why do we face opposition? Why do we face? You could answer it a couple of ways. I understand that. But why do we face opposition? What do you mean by that? <laughs> That's true. We belong to the kingdom of God and we're behind enemy lines. We're in occupied, we're, we are in that territory. So, and he said we're strangers. We're, we're not going to, I mean, there's this huge, huge push for Christians to be relevant. I mean, it's just, it's huge from the way that we, and you see it all kinds of ways. And I don't, and some of it's interpretive and I get that or, or um, subjective. You know, in the way that the worship service is conducted, to the way that we dress, to the way that we entertain ourselves, there's this huge push for Christians to be relevant. It's been going on for 40 or 50 years that, you know, if we could just be a little bit cooler, and some of you, you've been in Christianity long enough to have seen it rise and fall, come back, go away, and what was churches were doing cool things in the 90s that would be embarrassing if we did them today in church. Like all, some, we've seen all of this stuff. It rises and it falls. If we could just be a little cooler, a little hipper, a little more relevant, then everybody would be like, oh, those Christians aren't so weird after all. I guess I'll become a Christian. It doesn't work that way. Now, I don't think we should. I have known other believers who it seems like they go out of their way to be a stranger or a pilgrim or a little bit odd. I've observed that as well. We don't need to do that either. We embrace in our culture what is good and healthy, and we reject what is unbiblical. But the truth is this, that Christians, we're never going to fit in in the world. 
it's not going to happen. We're never going to be, we're never going to look the same. We're never going to act the same. We shouldn't. If we do, then if the salt loses its savor, it's henceforth good for nothing. You might as well throw it on the ground. That's what Jesus said. There's a distinction. Now, I understand that distinction is not mainly in how we dress or what would, although in this culture, there will be some distinction in that. Ultimately, it should be in our spirit, in our demeanor, in the way that we treat people, in the way that we behave, and in our pursuit of holiness. Now, of course, that will spill out in the ways that we dress, in the ways that we entertain ourselves, in all of these areas of our life. But we're never going to fit in. And as long as you don't fit in, you're going to face some opposition. I mean, it could be anything as simple as, well, we'll talk about it a little bit more. What are some other reasons that we face opposition? Just part of life. We live in a sinful, cursed world, and you're going to face troubles. It's going to happen. And there's those troubles. Maybe you didn't do anything to cause them. Maybe it wasn't even somebody causing you trouble. Just bad things happen. That's the world we live in. That's absolutely right. What's another reason we're going to face opposition? Those were two great answers. Let me give you one more. Oh, no, go ahead, Bill. Oh, yeah, so you could have done, especially before you're a Christian, you opposed yourself, and you're going to carry some of that baggage into your Christian life. And as a Christian, sometimes we oppose ourselves as well. We bring in our own troubles. Yeah. Right, so ultimately, the greatest source of our opposition is the fact that we are, and we are, what we do as believers, the life that we live, is the world-changing message of Jesus Christ. I mean, who we are called to be is of eternal significance. And so Satan will use everything he can to oppose us, to stop us, to slow us down. So flip over, and let's talk about a couple things then. So second question Second question, um, what types of opposition do we face? But what does it look like sometimes? What does it look like, opposition that we're going to face? I need real short answers because I want to finish this. I've got 10 minutes left. There's lawsuits. So the baker, the baker, he's facing, I think, his fourth lawsuit right now, um, Masterpiece Cake Shop. He's facing a lawsuit. There is civil and societal even governmental opposition. Now, fortunately, in America, we still have tremendous freedom, tremendous freedom. But we are watching them be attacked very systematically and methodically, those freedoms that we have. In other countries, people are literally persecuted by their governments. And we've ta we, talk, we try to talk a lot about that, remind ourselves of that. What else does, does opposition look like for us? So we see it's governmental, it's... So it's personal. So it's per personal. So some people, so like that, 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 the pastor in Maine there, they just assumed that he was a hater, bigoted. They just, just because he's a Christian, oh, you're a Christian? So tell me, why do you hate everyone? <laughs> right? That's sometimes the, the idea in our culture today. It's a lie that's been foisted on. So there can be personal, there can be some personal opposition. What else? What's uh, another type of uh, opposition we face? Yep. 
Yeah. People will, you're saying? Yeah. People will, people will, they'll tempt you. They'll challenge you. And it's amazing. What ha- Here's how the world works. Here's how the devil works. Be like, hey, Cal, you know, it's a long day at work. Why don't you come out? We'll knock a few back. We'll have a good time. Like, hey, man, I'm a Christian. I don't really do that thing. It's not my thing. Oh, just lighten up a little, you know, go out, get smashed once. It's not going to kill you. You can go ahead and be a Christian again on Tuesday. None of that matters. I mean, I'm giving a, you know, a, a not so wild, but out there illustration, right? You watch. You watch. You, you take that bait and you do that. That group will be the very first group of people to mock you for not being a real Christian. It's like, oh, oh, you're a Christian now? Now you want to talk to me about Jesus? Don't you remember last week? Don't you remember that? So Miss Bailey's right on. Our testimony is important. And the devil wants to entice us, and that's a form of opposition that can stop us. What's another way we face opposition? I should have just done this lesson from the very start. What uh stereotypes, and we can get, that can get in our heads sometimes. Yeah? Then there's another opposition that you'll face. It's an internal opposition. It's, the, it's the, the games that the devil likes to play with our mind. Doubt, insecurity, fear, all these thoughts that come up. Hey, how about this now? How about circumstantial opposition? Say, so what do you mean by circumstantial opposition? I mean, I'm trying to make healthy steps in my life. I'm trying to, maybe you're trying to read your Bible, pray, and your schedule just is not cooperating with you. And your work demands are just not making it easy for you. And you're trying to attend church regularly, and this is coming up against you, and that's coming up against you. Listen, those aren't just the circumstances of life. Those are forms of opposition that we encounter. Right? They're just circumstances of life, and we have to identify it as, wait a minute, I'm on a spiritual journey. The Lord is trying to do something in my life, and I cannot allow all these little things to be his form of opposition. So you tell me this, second question, what are some natural reactions that we have to opposition? Natural. Not the right ones, the natural ones. When we come up against forms of opposition, let's jot a few down quick. Naturally, where do we go? What do we do? In our flesh. Anger? I've got that one written down in my notes. We get angry. We may act rashly. Anyone in here ever act rashly? Just me? Okay. Uh, um, I'm, you guys are spiritual giants. We may say, we may be like, oh, why did they do that? And before praying, before even thinking, our flesh just says, I'm going to come up against this, this opposition. Natalia, you might seek comfort. You might look for, now you can find, now a spiritual response would be find comfort in the Holy Spirit, in the Lord, in his work. However, so that's, so that's a good response. However, if we don't have that, our, we do naturally want to be comforted. So in the fleshly sense, we can look for comfort in other sources. I think we all know what those kinds of things can be. It could be entertainment, it could be drink, it could be drugs, it could be sex, it could be all these things where we say, you know what, this just isn't enough anymore, I'm going to escape to this place over here. What's another way we react to it? Here's one that I, would, I do, is 
I'm, I, I am an isolationist. So me and you, okay? So, and we won't do it together either. So we, we're, we're having a hard time. Things aren't just working out. I'm just going to get away somewhere. You know what? They can all just forget it. They can all just have it. You know, I'm going up to my mountain. You know, I'm sitting up there, and I just want to be left alone. But that's not where we're called to be. Okay. What else do we do when we face op opposition? What's our natural responses? Oh, you can just wimp out? You would never do that. We do, though, don't we? We're just like, okay, whatever. I shared the gospel with somebody once. They didn't like it, so that's it for me. <laughs> you don't have to tell me twice. Yeah, we can, we can back down. What else? Say it, or do it, rash, impulsive, Charlie. Oh, that's, that's a good point. Like, oh, that's a good point. They were never like, well, the government system is rigged against us. How will, I mean, how are we supposed to function? You know, we've lost all of our Christian values, and there's nothing left. That's not... That might be on Fox News, but that's not in the Bible, right? I mean, in the Bible, they're courageous and bold. They're like, hey, we expect the world to be against the gospel, but we're going to still love, we're going to still march forward. That's our mission. So, yeah, corporately, that's a great. Any other, how about frustration, fatigue? Sometimes we face opposition after opposition after opposition, and sometimes we're just like, you know what, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I'm done. Somebody else have one? Think different, covered a lot of them. Yes. You should, he should certainly. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We need to fight for our Christian liberties. I'm not saying, but there's a difference between, even Paul would use the legal system of his day. Paul had a lot, Paul took a lot of beatings. He got a little wiser. You read toward the end of the book of Acts, they're about to beat him, and he's like, um, Hey, guys, I'm a Roman citizen. You sure you can do this? And then they were like, whoa, better not. It would have been against the law. So, no, use, we should use the, be thankful and steward the freedoms that we have. But there is, Charlie is right, that there is a victim mentality instead of a boldness and courageousness. So you're right. The, the Christian baker should, he should countersue, and he will again, and it'll, it'll, it'll get decided. So, yeah. So these are, these are um, wrong ways natural reactions to opposition. But what did we learn in here? I'm going to give you a couple things as we wrap it up that you can write down. You'll have to study them later. But how does the Holy Spirit replace those in, impulses? First of all, they were confident in God's providence, that God was going to work it all out. They were confident in God's providence. He opened the prison doors, if you remember from the story. He set them free. Apparently, God didn't want them in prison right then and there. He wanted them in prison for a little while, but then he was done with it. And so these, these guys, they were confident that God had, he was providential. God's providence, would, and we can trust God. We can trust him, amen? You can trust him. Then, I noticed this, not just confident, but they persevered with God's plan. They persevered with God's plan. Because they got right back to doing what? Preaching. They got right back to it. They faced the opposition. They said, God, we're trusting your plan. And they got right back to the mission. 
Thirdly, we ought to obey God rather than men, they said. That's allegiance to God's authority. They recognized that their ultimate allegiance was God. You getting them? Fourthly, they were bold in the truth. It was the truth that motivated them, not their character, not their personality, not the group mentality that would psych them up. They didn't have to blast their favorite tune to get going. It was the truth of God that motivated them. And fifthly, they found joy through God's love. They found joy through God's love. Joy through God's love. And that's why at the end they could say, we're rejoicing that we were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Can you and I say that? Can we say, you know what, Lord? I praise you that I faced this opposition. You gave everything for me, and I was worthy to give just a little bit for you. Confident in his providence, perseverance with his plan, allegiance to his authority, boldness in his truth, and joy in his love. That's how we respond. We let the Holy Spirit work that out in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, we thank you for the day that we live in. We thank you for our country and our culture that you've given us to be a, a bold witness and a bright, shining light. We ask for your help. We ask for courage and boldness in the name of Jesus. Please bless this worship service that we're going to have in a few minutes, Lord. We need your touch. We need your presence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.